The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we talk to two very different British artists. Later on I visit the Hoburn Museum in Bath to talk to George Shaw, who for more than 20 years has made paintings of the housing estate where he grew up, near Coventry in England's Midlands. But first this week, Tracy Emin. Her vast new exhibition, A Fortnight of Tears, has just opened at the White Cube Gallery in South London. In the period since her last show at the same gallery in 2014, Emin has lost her mother, to whom she was very close, and as ever, she brings a piercing honesty to her experience of grief. The show is awash with sadness and anxiety. Reflecting on her mother's death has prompted Emin to look back at earlier life events, including when she was raped as a teenager, her experience of abortion, and the end of a relationship with the love of her life. Characteristically, she explores these subjects through a range of media, including drawings and monoprints, three vast new bronze sculptures and a series of 52 huge self-portrait photographs taken on her iPhone as she experiences insomnia. There's also a 23-year-old video in which she describes her first abortion in 1990 and how it prompted the confessional approach she has taken to her work ever since. But more dominant than any medium is painting. Annie Shaw, a correspondent for the art newspaper in London, went to White Cube to meet her. Tracy, I wanted to start with the title um, of your show, A Fortnight of Tears. Your mum passed away two years ago, but there's lots of layers of loss and bereavement in this show. And I wanted to ask you, does A Fortnight of Tears refer to a specific period of time? Yeah, I think when I, when I was spun about 2001, 2000, 2002, when I, me and my boyfriend split up, I was about 39, and I realised that that was it. I was probably never going to have children, ever. And that would have been the stage in my life when I'd been with a partner for six years, we had a house, everything. That's probably when I would have bit the bullet and said, OK, I'll have a baby. And I knew that I wasn't going to. And I then cried and cried and cried. And I think my bereavement, what I was crying for was the loss of the future, the loss of being a mother, the possibility. I just knew it was never going to happen. And it seemed... I cried so much that I burst a a tear tear duct vessel in my eye. And my eye went all funny. And the doctor said, you know, I mustn't cry anymore. And I was thinking, how can you not cry anymore? It's, you know... Tears, you don't control your tears. And I really do believe that tears are poisonous. They're like silt, like the depression that we have, I think, is like dry tears that have to come out. So, um, yeah, I, the longest I've cried for is two weeks. And when my mum died, I knew, I thought, there's only a few more days of crying. But actually, I was walking just along Commercial Street a week or so ago, and I came out of the shop, turned the corner... And tears just sprung, and I realised I was missing my mum so much. So anybody that's had that kind of loss understands what I'm talking about. There's a darkness to your new paintings on show here. There's lots of reds and and dark patches, but there's also a vitality. Uh, What do these paintings say about where Tracy Emin is at in her life right now? I think I've never been so honest. When I'm always, I'm known for being too honest, okay, but still, there's things that you keep to yourself. There's things that you don't say. There's things like you, you button your lip because you know it's best to keep, you know. But in 2017, on New Year's Eve, I actually said that my New Year's resolution was to be able to tell the truth about anything. And I realised the first thing I had to do was tell the truth about my work and my art and express myself clearly, not in a clever way, but really how I felt. So I turned everything around and it was almost like starting from the beginning again. It was very exciting. And I think my mum's death gave me the impetus to do this and the strength in a way, because it made me question what everything's about. You mentioned this in the press conference. In, in 2015, you went on, you took a sabbatical and you went to France to paint. And it was around that time you found out your mum was ill. And I think you've said about that period that that's when you began to take your work more seriously. It was, it was actually 2016. But I planned to do the year's sabbatical. I planned it three years in advance because I had to, you know, I couldn't have any shows. I couldn't do any museum shows. Museum shows take three or four years, four years planning. 
So every museum show I was offered, I had to postpone or, or not do. So, and I had to say no to everything. And part of the sabbatical was no press, no charity, no photos, you know, nothing. Just being completely isolated to get on with my work. And, and unfortunately, it was in 2016, the beginning, I found out that my mum, you know, was, had terminal cancer. So the whole time, the whole sabbatical was very strange, actually. And strangely good timing, because it meant I could give my mum a lot of attention. I mean, you've been painting for, for all your career. I mean, you, you studied painting, you've been painting for a long time, but it was sort of, that was a turning point, would you say, or you began to really focus on your painting? No, I actually had a show at Chateau Lacoste in France um, in 2017, which was 10 years of painting. So there was paintings there that I'd shown in Venice. There was paintings there which I'd shown sporadically at the Royal College of Art. And often I'd have a show where I'd just show one painting and no one really noticed it. You know, everyone was looking at the subject matter and the tracy, you know. No one was really looking at the work. I mean, it was like when I was nominated for the Turner Prize back in 1999, nobody noticed the whole wall of really beauty, beautiful, gentle watercolours that were on the wall. No one mentioned them, no one even talked about them, because everybody was just talking about the bed, or about me, and how I was. But I think, I think also I think things come at the right time. I think had I have been showing my paintings, and, and painting a lot when I was younger, either I wouldn't have appreciated it, or the, the, the timing wouldn't have been appreciated, the whole thing. It would have been just something maybe I took for granted, and now I don't. Now I find it really like a precious commodity that I really love and adore, and the timing of it and how I do it. So I think it's come at the right time. Would you say painting's your greatest achievement? I mean, you've been talking about sort of this, you're entering this, the third part of your life as a trilogy. Do you, do you view it as your greatest achievement? When, when, so when I'm painting, I'm so happy, and even if I hate the painting it's all gone wrong the other week I did this really for me amazing blue painting and it was these two large heads looking at each other and she it was me and me and she I had this really thin red face and it was perfect it was so good it was saying exactly it was about saying goodbye to someone and it was so perfect and I got a bit irritated with myself and I really should have gone home but I decided I wanted to paint some more and completely ruined it. And I swear to God, I went into a bit of a depression for about 10 days. I couldn't do anything. I was so angry with myself because I'd loved the painting so much. And then I had to paint the whole thing out and just use the canvas for another painting, which I did a really good painting on. The blue painting underneath wasn't so good, but it was the blue painting that I want. But in my head, I've still got that blue painting. I still own it. I still own the experience of it. And it's like someone said in the press conference, like a million year, a million hours of painting, a million years of painting. Yeah. And now I'm just using the mistakes. And also some of the best paintings are the ones that went so wrong. You know, the ones that go really right, I sort of think, mm, maybe that was too easy. But the ones that go really wrong are the ones that kind of turn me on. I think, wow, I wasn't expecting that. You've, 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 despite the accolades, I mean, you were the Professor of Drawing at the Royal Academy of Art between 2011 and 2013. People still, some people still criticise your drawings and paintings for being crude or primitive, which could equally be compliments. Does it rankle you when people say you can't draw? Well, no, I can draw. I would say if someone put a gun at my head, I can draw really, really well. And I did a series of life drawing when I was in New York. I went to life drawing classes, and after about um, a week, I could draw academically really well again. It's about understanding and looking and seeing and balance. But I don't need to do that now. I did that for years when I was a, a student. I learned to draw. I learned, and now I can unlearn, and now I can go back to this, this almost crude gestural feeling of the cave woman what's wrong with the cave woman Anthony Gormley had a whole fantastic program on last week about cave paintings and I think to be called a cave painter is probably one of the greatest compliments you can have as an artist spirituality has been a constant in your life um, and there are a number of works here that relate to that there's a painting called Pink Ghost you've uh, bought your Ouija board from a 1996 work here, there are sort of little, little hints and elements of spirituality and, 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 and the afterlife 
Can you tell us a bit about what that means to you? Well, it, I was brought up with it, with seances, tarot card reading. Um, I think now I realise it's because my mum, my mum's family were gypsies. So, of course, it's kind of like a natural thing. And it's something which I've always really enjoyed and always embraced. And I have an absolute devout belief in souls and the afterlife. And now I'm really kind of quite publicly open about it because, as I said, time is short. Do you use the reader board or do you, get, do you have tarot readings? I, yeah, I have tarot cards. I, really, I saw a really amazing psychic. Um, she came to see me, actually, on the Psychic Sisters, and um, it was fantastic. She told me things the other day that nobody could possibly know. And it's so brilliant when that kind of stuff happens. And, it, it, and people, people have no problem going to see a psychiatrist, but people have a really big problem going to see a medium. And, of course, when you go to see a medium, what, what's happening is they're channeling something within you. And a lot of it is to do with stuff that has to come out of you that picks up on the ether or, you know, whatever it is, the energy, the atmosphere. You know, people say, you know, Tracy, can you leave the room? You've got bad energy about you. Yeah, because maybe I'm picking up on all the bad energy in the room or whatever. These things connect to us. We're, we're, it isn't just us. And this is, how I, this is what I believe and how I believe. But I don't expect anyone else to... I'm making other people believe that. You know, and that's the problem with religion. A lot of religions have made people believe them, forced them to believe something. What I believe in, I would never... You know, I'm not asking anyone to believe in it, but I'm actually very happy with my beliefs at the moment I feel good about it absolutely yeah. the, the, some of the new paintings that, you, that depict acts of sexual aggression including one of the rapes one of the two rapes when you were 13 um, I mean there's been a lot more women feeling more vocal that they're coming out and speaking about sexual abuse because of the Me Too move, movement something you've been doing for decades does it give you comfort that women are speaking out I think it's brilliant. Today, I just saw that GQ is addressing a lot of these um, uh, media people in music, in the film industry and everything. GQ is a men's magazine and it's taking the role of being responsible and asking these questions to other men. And I've been saying for a long time, it isn't up to the women to change things, it's up to the men. And the men now are starting to listen, the men who have a conscience, you know. And a lot of young people would be horrified if they were accused of any kind of sexual harassment or bullying or whatever. And I think it will... I actually believe now it's going to change faster than, than I thought or, or than I hoped. Because people are taking responsibility and understanding. And one thing about me, though, I've never, ever... I had to be, I've never had a boss, I've never had anybody who's more powerful than me or anything, or anybody that could change my destiny in any way, um, trying to um, sexually harass me or bully me or make me do something. And I don't know whether this is because they'd be really scared to. The last person who tried something on with me, I just threatened to punch them in public and scream and say why. And you tend that this doesn't seem to work. But then I've got nothing to lose because I work for myself and I'm an artist. And I think for a lot of women, if they've got a boss overshadowing them and they know that they're going to have some kind of ridicule within the workplace, it's a massive problem. But hopefully it's getting sorted out. And, you, and your work could potentially be helping young women who are in positions, pregnant, you know, scared about having an abortion... Your work has the power to, to help them. I think with the abortion thing, I really believe in I really believe in pro-choice, but I really think that women need all the information. They need to know how they may feel. They need to know that years later when they do have a child, they might be wrecked with so much guilt, they might have a nervous breakdown. There's, all of these things can happen to women when they have abortion, but there's not enough counselling, there's not enough guidance. And also, women aren't told how serious it is and, and the repercussions from the operation of what could happen. So I think my work opens up the subject and gives people something to talk about. You know, if I'd had a choice, of course I wouldn't have had an abortion. I wouldn't have got pregnant in the first place. Or I might have been with someone who loved me. And that would have been a completely different issue as well. You know, but sometimes in life we don't have those choices. 
you could talk about the mother, which is the bronze sculpture. That um, you've got a smaller version here at White Cube, and there's another version being unveiled. Well, it's quite funny because the small version of the mother that's here is actually over three metres, which is pretty big. And it's in the room called the 9 by 9 Gallery at White Cube. And the eventual size will be probably nine metres. And I'm actually really pleased about this. I won the commission for um, Museum Island in Oslo, which is an island which stands in front of the new Munch Museum. And my sculpture, the mother, will stand there. And it's going to be fantastic, like you know, this giant bronze of this, my mum, this older woman, this old lady, you know, taking root in front of the Monk Museum, protecting Monk's work, you know, legs open towards the field, welcoming travellers, you know, I think it's, I'm so happy about it. I never thought I'd get it. So the small, small one, which is three and a half metres that's here, is like the first initial stage before I do the really big one. It's right. very exciting. And that's being unveiled next year to yeah. coincide with a show you've got at the, the Monk Museum. Yeah, like you, can't, like you can't believe it. You know, it sounds so untrue. I am having my mum's, my mum, giant bronze, the mother, in front of the Monk Museum at the same time when I am the opening show of the Edvard Monk Museum. I mean, it's like a dream. I can't... When I was young, I never, I never thought things could be possible. And it's like everything I've ever wanted as an artist. It's, it's unbelievable. And it's partly because I'm doing, as I keep saying, I'm doing the right thing. I'm looking in the right direction. I'm going towards the direction of what I really love. Not what people think is good or what you should be doing, but what I, I love and what I think is important. And I think that was what was recognised when I won the commission for the mother. My love for Edvard Munch shone and shone and shone. You're also showing a new series of photographs um, called Insomnia, which is you documenting um, that tormented state. Um, for over the past three years, I think you've been making hundreds of images, taking, documenting the state of mind on your iPhone. But what's interesting is that you're turning sort of selfie culture on its head. You're showing these unfiltered, um, unmediated images of yourself. I just wondered if you could describe to us what, what moment you thought you'd start documenting this and then making it a work of art i think i think it's because i'm feeling really really bad you know really tired i just wanted to go to sleep and i think obviously i was like tech, looking at my phone whatever it was and then i just maybe even photographed the room i think i think i was in france and i photographed my bedroom because i thought the light looked nice or something and then i just turned it around and took the photo of me and I thought, oh, my God, I look so awful. And then another time I did another one, I thought, God, I look quite good there. And then I was thinking, this actually correlates to my state of mind, but not my state of, of insomnia. And I started to think how, that, you know, one of these things that people say, oh, it's, it's really good with insomnia because it means you can work. And I say, no, you can't work. Someone who works a night shift doesn't have insomnia they're working, they're going to work. If I was in the studio painting at four in the morning, then I'm working, I'm painting, I haven't got insomnia. I've just stayed up really late and I'm working. Insomnia is when you're pinned to the bed, when you can't move, when you, 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 all your bones and your muscles are aching and tired because they haven't had enough sleep and enough rest. You're, you, you might have a migraine, your eyes are really dry, and also your organs start to sort of fuck up and misfunction because you're not getting any rejuvenation. And there's a, a really bad... People who suffer from terrible insomnia all their life usually die earlier um through like some fast strange causes because they have their kidneys don't work properly this doesn't work properly that doesn't work properly and it's not a nice feeling to be trapped in a state of like you know twilight zone uh, no man's land twilight zone whatever you want to call it the in-between world it, it's not good and but me doing these portraits i started to think well this is interesting and really think about it and start making work from it and I never thought I was going to, when I started doing them I didn't think I was going to present them like this which is really large um I thought I was I don't know what I was going to do I just had a whole stack of them 100 I said to Harry print out every one of my insomnia photos so yeah. and these are just like 50 out of like hundreds it's moving forward you're you're developing a studio in Margate you're returning to Margate where you 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 grew up 
And I just wondered how you're feeling about returning. Um, there's obviously a lot of memories there, and it's a very different place now. Margate's hip. Right, Margate, it's a place. People call it Shoreditch by the Sea. And I say it's better than Shoreditch because it's got the sea, you know. It's so beautiful. It's got amazing Georgian architecture. It's, it's on hills, Margate, you know, and it's kind of kind of rough. It's kind of gritty. It isn't like some sort of, like, twee seaside town it actually has got a bit of guts to it and um i think for me there will be a lot of ghosts there but i also said that um it will be inspirational as well because i'll be able to delve into my past really clearly and i've got everything there i mean it's like it's going to be amazing and the other thing about margate has the most wonderful light which is fantastic and then, you know, galleries are opening there. I mean, since Turner Contemporary is opened, there's a whole vintage area, which is really brilliant. Carl Friedman Gallery is opening next door. Um, other galleries opening. My friends have just bought a hotel there. Gabriel Chipperfield and Matthew Slotover bought a hotel there. So that's going to be pretty hip and good. I think people like Mark Hicks have been, uh, and Jose Pizarro have been toying with the idea of opening restaurants there. It's going to be... I think within the fi- next five years, it's definitely going to be a major creative destination. So it's good, though, because there's, like, journalists here from America, and one of them's from the New York Times, saying that she'd like to go down to Margate and do a feature. You know, it's happening. People are hearing about it. It's good. And I've read that you plan to turn your studio into a museum, but once you die, is that... Have you got plans in place are you thinking about your legacy in a very I'm, I'm totally thinking i've been keeping a will for years it constantly changes now i'm going to be putting a foundation together and i haven't i haven't bought the studio with you know to avoid tax and do a foundation thing now i'll do it when i'm dead and i will have that as my museum and i think it'll be a great legacy for margate it's big enough for a museum and i come from margate i'm synonymous with margate and it, that is something when I'm, you know, that's a nice thing to look forward to. All right, I might be dead, but I might be able to come back and, you know, rearrange a few things every <laughs> now and then. So, you know, at the moment, with I feel that for the first time, really seriously in my life, I have something to look forward to and work towards in a really positive way because I'm just so much happier with what I'm doing and with where I am. Do you keep a collection of your own works? Is that what you would intend to sort of? put in the museum or what, what do you see for yeah that? I, I i keep things from a sentimental point of view and i've got to try and get my act together and start keeping some of the big boys back you know so otherwise there'll be nothing for the museum so and also i've sworn to god that i'm never going to buy my own work back anymore ever again i've only done it a couple of times and then i only did it because once because i had to get a cardigan back that my neighbor gave me when i was eight what, what was the story there? Well, actually, it was the work to do with the seance. With a, it was the seance piece from the letters. Um, there was the seance board, and then there was chair, and on the chair was a cardigan, a multicoloured cardigan, and it was given to me by an old lady called Vi Player, who lived next door to me, and I always felt guilty about selling the work with the cardigan, so I bought the work back in an auction, so that I got the cardigan back. So I know, but I don't. I don't mind my work, where my work goes, whatever. Once it leaves me, it has its own destiny, its own life. I can't control that. Mm. So with the museum, I'm not going to be one of these artists, you know. When I'm 70, 80, buying all my work back to try and fill my museum up, I've got to actually make work and save it for that. And we we touched upon it in the, the press conference. It's sort of the the big bust up, the leaving Europe. You voted for Cameron and his manifesto to leave the EU. No, I didn't. I oh. did not do that. Right. I didn't do that. I voted for David Cameron before not for the mani- before, before the manifesto. No, of course there was no manifesto. David Cameron was is pro Europe. David Cameron didn't want to leave Europe. David Cameron didn't possibly believe that there would be a majority vote to leave. And nor did half the Tory party, because they were stupid. And they were, it's really true, they were not in touch with what was happening and what was happening with people. And I went back and told them, look, you know, have you been to Margate? Have you been here? Have you been there? You know, people are going to vote to leave. It was exactly the same in America. People voted for Trump. 
You know, and, and people in New York were going, oh, it's nothing, of course he won't get in. Well, he did, because the people in New York were out of touch with what was happening in, in Minnesota or, or in the Midwest or whatever. And it's exactly the same in Britain. You know, politicians, not just Tory politicians, all, all of Parliament is out of touch with what is happening in the country and the state of poverty that people are going through. And that's got nothing to do with whether you're Tory, whether you're Labour or whatever. It's about, it's about society as a whole, not looking after itself and not taking care of people. And you've got people like Jeremy Corbyn, whose ego and destruction, the way he's behaving, is, is really, really detrimental to the Labour Party as much as it is for the whole of, the, of society. So I don't, just, I'm not, I don't just think it's like one, one set of people. I just think it's, the, it's government and parliament in general. It's, it's a shambles and they should feel, they're a laughing stock. And I travel a lot around Europe for different reasons and people make jokes now. There's jokes about the British it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And I couldn't possibly sort it out. I'm not saying that I could. But one thing I, I would never have got, would never have imagined that it could have got into the state that it is. It's, it's shameful. When often, when this country has been in terrible like, times, um, it's the creative industries that have actually made this country proud and pulled things together. So I'm hoping that we're not going to be stopped from that. Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. Cool, thanks. Tracy Emmins, A Fortnight of Tears, is at White Cube, Bermondsey, until the 7th of April. An Emmins exhibition, The Fear of Loving, in which she brings her works into dialogue with the drawings collection at the Musée d'Orsay, will open in Paris in June. Her exhibition and sculpture for the Edvard Munch Museum will open in the spring of next year. We'll be back talking to George Shaw after this. The master glass artist René Lalique died in 1945, but his work feels as fresh as the day it was conceived. The private collection of Lalique glass that's offered at Bonham's Knightsbridge in London on the 20th of February demonstrates his talent for drawing, design and sculpting objects of great beauty. In the hands of Lalique, a pair of knife rests, for example, are transformed into dragonflies. A perfume burner becomes an artichoke. This fertile imagination is the reason why so many of the world's museums display his work. The collection offered at Bonhams spans the artist's career and includes fine and rare examples of his developing style. Charmingly, one piece, a vase made in 1920 using the sea perdu or lost wax technique, bears the distinct imprint of the master's thumb on its underside, a reminder that Lalique was also a craftsman as well as a supreme artist. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, George Shaw makes paintings and drawings of Tile Hill, the estate just outside Coventry where he grew up in the 70s and 80s. Based on photographs and rendered in enamel paint, they teem with references to British art, literature, film and music. A major retrospective of Shaw's work was shown at the Yale Centre for British Art in New Haven, Connecticut at the end of last year. And a smaller version of that show, with 20 paintings and 30 drawings, is now at the Hoban Museum in Bath, that ancient Roman city in Western England that was also a great centre for Grand Manor 18th century British paintings by Gainsborough and his ilk. I went to Bath to talk to George. George, we're standing in the exhibition here at the Hoban Museum in Bath. And I wanted to begin by asking you about Tile Hill and your experiences there. I mean, in many ways, I don't. My memory of the place, of the place I grew up in, is quite um, weak and thin. My brothers and sisters and my, some friends that I would have had probably have a much more clearer memory of certain things. I, I don't. Everything's kind of a little bit hazy on the whole. Um, that's always made me think that maybe that's the reason why I'm kind of so fixated by by this as a huge. I don't con- I, I don't concentrate very much in the present tense. That's my problem. Um, so I'm not. I'm always thinking about things that happened yesterday or the day before or whatever, rather than what I should be doing. I know this is it's the complete opposite of mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> is that how what mindfulness is? Thinking about the present tense. Um, which I suppose allows you to concentrate on what you're doing at the time, you know, and you become focused. I am not focused whatsoever. So um, growing up, you know, I can't really... Every summer holiday blends into one long, probably, day. So that's, you know, a whole 
you know, ten years of summer holidays all blended into one day, of which it was sunny on. You know, every school day blends into one school day in which you were bullied and it rained. So it's a very specific day. I, I always have great um, disbelief in that project of Carlo uh, Vinausgaard's, you know, the uh, My Struggle, um, because I, I mean, my struggle would be to remember a page. Um, he seems to have remembered <laughs> rather more and in quite specific detail no wonder he had so many problems um, but I, I kind of feel that it's it's slightly not slightly embellished and in many ways not having any kind of focused memory I'm suppose there are specific things I can remember um, not worth mentioning really on the whole um, being a novelist would have been a really bad thing for me to want to be, with with having no memory. I'd have ended up as Samuel Beckett, I suppose, um, with no very specific narrative. But being a painter and being a visual artist means that you can be actually quite um, vague. Um, you can pin things down and be vague at the same time. There's an intriguing balance of time in your work, isn't there? Because on the one hand, these paintings are based on photographs, and then a huge amount of memory and you might as you might say like sort of unfocused memory comes into it so there's this curious balance between looking back and then a very specific moment captured in the photograph and then of course the artistic license which mean that you d means you don't have to be utterly faithful to the photograph no i mean you don't have to be faithful to anything in some senses um the secret in life as in art is not getting caught um that's what the unfaithful have to be is clever <laughs> um but that you don't i when I think about photography, they're all based on photographs. And the, and the, the conceit I like about photography is that photography is, is a time travel only in one direction. <laughs> um, because time photographs are always of the past. No matter how quick the shutter speed is, it's always of what's past. Painting is very much a, um, a timeless activity. It, it doesn't, it, it's not located, I don't think, anyway, in a tense. So although you make it in the present tense, you could be painting um, anything in any, in any time zone because it's, um, it's not an actual thing. It's not recorded anything. It's something that's been digested. It's like thinking about um, excrement as having a tense. <laughs> <laughs> it just is. Um, it's just something that's passed through and is. And I think that, in many ways, painting is a way of liberating the image from um, its tense, for me. Tell me about realism, because I, I, I think a lot of people might describe your work as photorealist, but it seems to me that there's always been a subversion of realism in your work and and I see that especially when we come to the skies in your work for instance can you tell me about that negotiation with realism if you like I mean one they're, they're kind of art terms rather than terms people use in everyday speech so and photorealism is a word which has absolutely no currency with my work whatsoever so it's I'm not it's a period of of art history which was very short very short-lived and um and when you see those works, they bear no relationship to my work. So I, I mean, I go to great lengths to, to eliminate um, the photographic trace in my paintings. So, um, for example, a lot of the photographs I make, uh, verticals and horizontals are curved. Uh, you very rarely see them in my pictures. Um, another thing that, to do with the colour and things to do with, fo with photographs, they're nothing to do with the colour of a photograph, which is what photorealism is. It really... Um, wants to be a photograph. I would like my paintings to uh, eliminate photography whatsoever. You could say, well, why do you work from, photographic, from a photographic source? Um, in the same way that an artist in previous centuries would have used a pencil sketch as a source, but it doesn't stop them from wanting to eliminate all kind of pencil sketchiness from their finished work. <laughs> so... Um, I, in many ways, it's a kind of brushing away the tracks, you know, uh, you know, that like you would do if you were in the woods and didn't want people to follow you. So that's 
that's one of the things that's, that happens with me in my relationship with photography. But realism is another thing. Um, uh, I prefer the term realism. Um, and realism is something that comes, comes um, from a variety of points in art history for me. Not only do they, do they tag on to things to do with um, how something looks, but also to de- it also describes the thing being depicted. So if you think about um, uh, 19th century painting, depicting um, working people, for example. If you think about Corbet depicting peasants or um, the, uh, even pre-Raphaelites depicting the world around them, you know, as in the, um, the painting work. That's about realism, more so than how it's depicted, if that makes sense for me. So for me, it was the realism bit was wanting to be have a truth about my own experience of the world, as well as it wanting to um, look like the world as well. That was where the two bits of realism kind of coincided. We're standing facing now a, a painting called Ash Wednesday, 8am, and it captures a particular moment, but there's this almost hallucinogenic yellow sky. And this is what I mean by that sort of enhanced, kind of almost hallucinogenic quality that, that some of your skies have, this kind of almost unreal aspect. Tell me about... about well, that's, I mean, that, that, you know, talking about realism, when people have sometimes described the work as photorealistic or even realistic, this is the painting I do, I kind of illustrate the opposite. Because it's, if anything, it's just, it's, it's an abstract painting. It's straight out of the can. You know, it's very much like that American modernist, uh, just straight out of the can. <laughs> it poured out and just moved across and then let dry and moved across. Um, but probably a lot of people would probably think, yeah, that ex- looks exactly like what you've done. So, and then it has this kind of curious um, scene depicted in front of that abstraction, um, which is quite flat. I mean, it, it looks like um, a theatrical flat. They call them flats yes. in theatre. And then, and then any depth is created solely by, um, by the zigzag lines and things on the front. So you could say it was an exercise in visual representation in terms of flatness and depth and those kind of things. Um, if, I were to, if I was a kind of 1960s Hockney, those were the kind of things he would have been playing with in some of his paintings, which I think go back to his early excitement when he was a child and when he was a teenager about how easy and how difficult and in the same way it is to trick and deceive the eye and deceive the viewer in terms of making um, pictorial representations. So all them sort of things go in. All those things that are great things to play with when you were, when you were, when you were an artist in a real painter playing with all them things. On the other hand, it's a kind of dragged up image from my own childhood, which for me... Uh, makes it um, the point about making the picture in the first place. I'm not solely interested in games um, and tricks and things that are being played in the studio. There is a... I, I'm, lately, I'm beginning to think there is something about me that wants to connect with a, another human being. And I think that's what I find useful in the implied narrative and the implied um, reminisce of the work that that it holds viewers and people who come to galleries and all what, what however you want to describe them it kind of holds them it captures them um, maybe in a way in which more gamey pieces of art gamey makes them sound like they've been well hung like a piece of meat but maybe <laughs> maybe that's maybe that is it maybe that's what I do mean <laughs> they've been hunted down and strung up but it's interesting you talk about the sort of uh, the, the Hockney because it seems to me that your work is very much in a tradition, and Bacon did it too, where you're playing with abstraction and representation quite a lot. And there's a, there's a painting in here which has a, a, a brick wall with white paint sort of dripping down it, at least a splodge of white paint dripping down it, and it has a very direct reference with a particular uh, Bacon painting. And, and in a similar way, you know, Bacon had this sort of to-and-fro relationship with abstraction, didn't he? 
Well, I mean, I mean, looking through that, the recent impressive catalogue resume of Bacon's paintings, you can start to see how his work is a reaction to what's going on in contemporary art around him through the 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, even 80s. Um, you can you see abstraction coming in, you see pop art coming in, you see bright colours coming in. Um, you see the, the I mean, the, the particular sections of Bacon where it looks like it's all going on at the same time. You've got a kind of Rothko at the background, you've got an expressionist blob in the foreground, you've got some pop art lecture sets spilling out, you've got flatness and depth, you've got a little bit of photorealism. He sort of wants it all. No wonder he's so popular, because you get about six paintings in one when you buy a certain period of Bacon. Um, but I think there's something about what happens with certain artists like, I mean, Bacon and, and Hockney, you can see them playing off each other as well with the shower scenes and then that jet of water and, and they're kind of vying with each other. And, and of course, what they're really vying with is their little boys playing on the table, on the floor, uh, at Picasso's feet, really. I mean, one of the striking things about your body of work is that you looking back at other artists is as much filmmakers, poets, writers, as it is painters, it seems to me. That, that hinterland, that cultural hinterland is, is just as important to you as, paint, as the history of painting. Yeah, I mean, it all goes in the same pot as far as I'm concerned. Um, any form of um, sort of dis- separating one art form off from another art form is as ludicrous as separating it into high and low culture. Um, uh, who de- I don't know who de- who defines these things, you know who ch- who chooses these things and who chooses the choosers of these things. So um, it's a um, it, for me it's a kind of bigotry, you know, and designed to keep certain people in in their place. Um, so I make no distinction between the greatest paintings in the world and um, the greatest bits of TV in the world. So the important my my dad who always looked quite sceptical at us when we were children watching crap telly. Said, said once, I don't mind you watching crap telly um, as long as you know that it's crap. So that's, that's, that's his line. So, <laughs> and then how do we know that it's crap? He goes, well, that's, a, that's another... That's what education's for. <laughs> but there's a wall behind where we're standing now which, which is very evocative of what you're describing because, for instance, there's a very detailed pencil drawing of a figure from a... TV programme that is enormously sort of is central in the minds of anybody who grew up in the 1970s and 80s this programme called Grange Hill about a school uh, which lots of kids that I knew were banned from watching because it was so tough and uh, and so there's a pencil drawing of her but then at the same time there's a, a pencil drawing of Ian Curtis from uh, Joy Division and then there's also uh, uh, the figure, the, the protagonist from Kez, the Ken Loach film so in a way lots of those influences we're discussing are, are sort of brought forward in a very direct way in, in these drawings do you feel it's really important to show that those kind of influences in this kind of very clear way next to the paintings or can it exist quietly at other times? Um, well, this, is the, this series of exhibitions is the first time the drawings have been put together. They've never really been in the same room. They've kind of been shown in little ante rooms and things like that, um, or in separate separate buildings entirely. So um, I've I've always kind of kept them slightly to one side. For me, it's um, for me it's the the underdrawing, the undergrowth that, of of the work. Really, they're like studies for some of these finished paintings, really. Although, you know, my drawing of Philip Larkin or Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster might not look like the, um, a study for a, a dilapidated pub. It, you know, yeah, the, the figure of Frankenstein's monster and <laughs> Philip Larkin go quite well to describe a dilapidated um, English pub. <laughs> um, but the, um, it was... For me, there were so many things rattling around as influences from Constable through to uh, James Joyce through to Grange Hill. Um, drawing is a way of making them, like we were talking earlier about uh, distinctions in art or distinctions in culture, drawing is a way of making everything the same. Um, so it's a 2B to 4B pencil. They tend to be on quite uniform bits of paper, which you can buy from, you know, sketch pads A4, A3, what have you. Um, and the, 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 for me, 
I know that they have been identified by certain um, people cleverer than me as having a style. For me, they don't have a style. Uh, I know that they've, they've been identified as the style of the fan. or But that, for me, is in many ways a way of designating them not as serious drawing, not the kind of drawing that we see in the British Museum or we see in, um, you know, in, in great big books on drawing. It's a way of, this is something... Um, uh, uh, the uneducated people do, or people do in their past, in their spare time, or um, adolescents do. This isn't the serious endeavour of an artist, and um, and yet they're very technically accomplished. Well, I thought so, but some people have described them as being completely opposite. Um, quite, yeah. It's uh, it was quite, yeah. I, th- I th- personally, I think I'm quite adept at it, but it's it, for me, it's just an exact translation of the thing in front of me. Um, you know, whether it be an album cover or a photograph from my own childhood or whatever. It, for me, it's not elaborating it with art historical flourishes so it doesn't get distorted into expressionism or, or uh, some kind of telling a story. It is quite brutally a frank um, translation of from one thing into another. And for me, it isn't the translation of it from an album cover or a, or a still from a movie into a drawing. For me, the translation is it from being something that's outside in the world to something that is now in my world. I own it. It's gone through me. It's a bit like someone reciting a poem that they know really well and they get slight um, words wrong or slight nuances wrong, or, um, which I always find actually quite quite. Um, touching and quite beautiful because it, it transforms slowly and we know for a fact that before things were written down that, that stories were, were changed anyway they were modified or misheard or um, and the, the, what we think of as being culture is actually modified by people who were probably uncultured and I use those terms um, sarcastically <laughs> the, the, the idea of stories and, and particularly journeys is really important in your work and, and a very early body of work was called Scenes from the Passion. And, it, of course, it's a very evocative and loaded terminology. But, of course, when you're talking about the passion, you're not just evoking the story of Christ there, but, but your own passion in t- and your experiences in Tar Hill. Yeah, I mean, it kind of slightly goes against the grain of what I would begin the conversation when I was saying I don't remember anything. But, um, but I have a, um, a passion for my, for, for my beginnings, um, and, the, and the roots of myself, um, which are, you could put lay at the, well, quite, quite obviously you lay at the, at the feet of your mum and dad. So, um, and, and, the, and the, the, the things that they instilled in us and the values that they instilled in us as, uh, when we were growing up, um, and which we saw um, operating in um, the world we, we lived around us, things to do with respect and tolerance and... Um, respect for education, all these kind of things, which are all kind of slightly old-fashioned now. They've all been fairly um, much um, quantified and sold back. <laughs> um, but there is, there is a passion for that. There's a passion for those kind of older, that kind of older um, um, honesty about the world. Um, but, the, but the passion is also something um, which we see in, as, as a reference in Catholic imagery and within Catholic um, texts to do with the uh, death of Christ, um, but they also um, people have a passion for sometimes for the smallest possible things. So we go from the passion of Christ, which is um, the death of the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, which is if you can show me a bigger story, I don't know of one. Um, whether you believe it or you don't believe it, um, to somebody who has a passion for badges. <laughs> Or a passion for for knitting, or a passion for these are the things which I find quite. Uh, but essentially, what they're dealing with is something that keeps your heart beating. It's a sign that you're alive. It's a sign that you're um, in the world. Um, and you could say something about that painting, although it's something which we find in the National Gallery, and it's something we find in you know in the Louvre and all these great institutions of the higher end of art. But it's mainly practiced by people at home painting you know the dog or, or whatever and they have a passion for that they have little bits of the house or the shed or the garden where they where they do it um and of course the paints that i use are the are the same paints that who, for people who have passion for model making 
which is another way of kind of recreating the world in a different way. That's it. Enamel is something which you've spoken about as being associated with kind of folk art, with, like you say, model making, but also with things like pub signs and stuff like that. And and that appealed to you, even though you very clearly from, as we can see from the paintings around us now, you have moulded into an extremely sophisticated medium for fine art. Is that a deliberate conundrum? If you conundrums too gamey. No, I mean conundrum. I mean conundrums and um, uh, contradictions are something which happens as soon as you start speaking about anything. And I think to, to tying things up and making neat little parcels of the things might explain why everything's in a mess, and also why people feel that they're not performing as well as they should, because. Uh, our role models don't have these conundrums and they're focused and stuff. In actual fact, we need maybe a little bit more honest about the uh, the confusion that we all have, that we th- things aren't so clear-cut and things aren't so um, clearly defined, really. Um, I mean, with my work, I kind of wanted to... I want to be uh, Rembrandt. On the other hand, I kind of wanted to be... Um, the kid who was a year above me at school who looked really cool in a Harrington jacket. <laughs> you know, and th- th- those aspirations sat quite comfortably together in my bedroom. They only got really d- really uncomfortable when I, when I voiced them or, um, or tried to make sense of them. Um, and for me, wanting to make paintings that are as important as the paintings I see in the National Gallery... Or anyone would see in the National Gallery. I'm using that as a as a, as the end point of quality. <laughs> um, they also it also um, I, I also really enjoy watching uh, looking at um, pub signs um, and sign writing and and the kind of vernacular art that that um, that someone like Peter Blake makes so. Uh, made a lifetime of collecting together and, inc- and increasingly has you know his collection of trivia in a way has become extremely important to us um, but that, but it's also a kind of class thing that one thing is seen as being um, for a certain type of people and another thing is seen for another type of people um, and they only really kind of come together with a kind of snobbery or condescension I kind of much prefer it all to come together and without any distinctions so that enamel paint on board of a fairly representational scene is using all the um, techniques of um, barge painting or pub sign painting with all the heightened aspirations of someone who wants to be the greatest living painter. <laughs> the work has this, obviously, we've talked about this sort of personal aspect, the idea of looking at one's past, this idea of memory, but you can't avoid this, that there's an aspect of social commentary in the work. Um, can you tell me about how actively that is in your mind when you conceive of the paintings? Well, it's, I mean, the social commentary thing comes out of just seeing the world as it is. I mean, I'm not, I, don't, I didn't make a comment um, I can make comments now, <laughs> but in the work, the commentary comes out um, just by simply uh, having a pointy finger. You know, another cliche of my dad's was, you know, um, I'll show you an idiot when you point at the sun and he looks at your finger. <laughs> and um, if you paint something which is very obviously the scene outside the window. Um, it's seen as being a social commentary. I mean, if I lived in a, if I, I do live in a really nice place, if I painted a view out of my window, it wouldn't look like social commentary because it would be a, a rose growing in a, in a, in a tub. <laughs> or it would be a cow mooching. You wouldn't think of it as social commentary at all. This kind of looks like social commentary. And I know that there are art and artists that looks like social commentary, and it isn't. It's just in the same way that there is expressionism, which expresses nothing. And there is really, there's photorealism, which isn't, you know, these kind of art terms and terms. It kind of looks like, a lot of my, I'm looking at a painting of the collapsed pub or where a pub, it looks like social realism. It looks like all the hallmarks of it. Um, and it looks like social comedy. It looks like it could be almost political. 
but they're quite blank. They're quite blank um, until we see the title. <laughs> um, the title makes me... The, it's the title, I think, which trigger that other thing to make you... Is it just an exercise in visual um, perception? Oh, no, it's the painting of the pub is called The Age of Bullshit. So it's clearly not. Yeah. Clearly it's involved in something to do with um, more than just looking at something. Um, so that's the journey I, I like to make with the work that someone could look at it and then they look at the title and then there's a little kind of um, calculation about what, what's going on there. Um, are the, the little uh, influences which I take have come from um, English ph- British photography of the 60s and 70s, which I really enjoyed, Daniel Meadows or Homer Sykes or these kind of guys, but also from filmmakers from the kitchen sink realism schools of Lindy Anderson or mass observation cinema, right through to um, Ken Loach and those, those kind of guys, who are ve- some of which are very politically active. I'm not politically active in that way. Um, I'm not engaged at all with, with the human beings around me. Um, and the, but this, I'm beginning to think that this might be the way in which I do that with the work. Um, but of course, over 22 years of painting the same place and, and having the same place change, it's invariably started to become a document of a, of a certain place as it changes. Lastly, in the past you said to me that you were considering moving on from painting Tile Hill. Is that in your mind at all? It seems to me it's still very rich territory. I mean, I know it was the place in which um, I was brought up and it began in, in many ways as a direct uh, story that grew out of that. But as, it's, as time's gone on, it's, it's just a place to work in or to work with. It could be anywhere. You know, if I was born in Tibet or if I was born in Newcastle or, or Toronto or somewhere, it would, have been, it would have been about that. For me, it's, it doesn't... The fact that I have a real personal connection to it and, and an ongoing personal connection to it is interesting. I feel entitled to see its change, but m- probably more important, I be- think of it as less now as a painting of a particular place and more of a series of paintings of a particular person. So my favourite series of paintings, if you wanted, if you was on Desert Island paintings, <laughs> would be, I would take all of Rembrandt's self-portraits. Um, I was envious of them as a child. They, they, they uh, still in, uh, enchant me and mystify me. Um, I knew that you were never able to accomplish that. No other artist could, I don't think. It's been tried and tried. But I think there's something in subconsciously that that's what happened here, that really you're painting your own decline. Um, you know, the beret's gone, the gold chains are gone. <laughs> um, um, and in some ways that's, as well as that being a self-portrait, um, in the same way that Rembrandt's self-portraits are a mirror of his society um, and the way in which that changed, in the same way that this painting of a place which has changed through nature and it's been changed through political will um, is also a representation of a person that came from here as well. That's growing a little bit older. George, thank you so much. Cheers. (laughs) George Shaw, A Corner of a Foreign Field, is at the Hoban Museum in Bath until the 6th of May and a magnificent book published to coincide with this and the Yale show, edited by Mark Hallett of the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, is available through Yale University Press for £50 or $70 in the US. And at the Paul Mellon Centre in London is a small display of memorabilia that shaped George Shaw's adolescence, called Secondhand Daylight. That runs until the 3rd of May. And that's all for this week. Please do subscribe if you haven't already and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. You can also find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly print edition of the art newspaper, you can do so at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. 
The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Machowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Annie and Tracy and to George, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.